Wonderful, wonderful. Take your Bibles and turn to Esther chapter nine. Esther chapter nine is where you're gonna be at. And uh, I'm gonna start with a question. The question is, and you can be honest here, uh, does anybody in here have a uh, unique thing or you know, unique way that you celebrate a specific thing? Anybody have anything like that? Anyone, anyone? Come on. Is my family the only goofy one on the planet Earth? Okay, I'm going to tell you about a, a weird thing that my family does. Uh, and it's the kids, I got to tell you, young kids, this is the worst thing that a family could do to a young guy. So <clears throat> there's this guy in our family. I've never met him. He's, he's been dead a long time. He was a World War II veteran uh, in our family, Uncle Harry Teedy, okay? So Uncle Harry uh, was in the military, career man in the military, and um, uh, the, the closest I ever got to Uncle Harry was I, when I was a kid, I mowed a cemetery and I mowed around his gravestone. That's as <laughs> close as I ever got to him. But he was a career military man and he would come home for Christmas. I understand. I wasn't alive at that time. But when he would come home, apparently, you know, he had to like take leave from the base and he had to catch a train and then he had to catch or catch a bus and catch a train. I don't know. It involved buses and trains. And, uh, and, and he would always come home. Now, our family tradition was to open our gifts on Christmas Eve in the, in the evening. We would have the evening meal and then we would retire to the living room and everybody would open their presents. And it is my understanding that, uh, uh, that, that Uncle Harry... It had always had the best intentions, but he would always fail to show up at the right time. Maybe his bus was running late, his train, I don't know. But invariably, uh, somebody in the room, uh, maybe grandpa or somebody like that would say, stop, we're not opening anything. We can't have Christmas until Uncle Harry comes home, okay? Now, this had a profound effect on my family because it must, Uncle Harry must have annoyed so many people for so many Christmases that even until I was a teenager, we would go over to my grandparents' house, we would have the evening meal, we would retire to the living room, we would go to open the presents, and just as the first child was beginning to open the first present, someone would step in and say, stop, we've got to wait for Uncle Harry to come home. <laughs> Who's Uncle Harry? And then the story came, you know, long, drawn-out story about how Uncle Harry always came home late. Sometimes 2 a.m. he would come home, you know, all this kind of stuff. We can't have Christmas until... And then it's like, okay, fine, you're done with the story. Can we open the presents now? <laughs> we have weird ways, right, as people of, of remembering things, remembering things. Uh, in England, there's a very odd thing. There's this thing called Guy Fox Night. Have you ever heard of this? <clears throat> Guy Fox was, in, was a Roman Catholic fella. Back in England's earlier days, they had a big dispute over should they have a Roman Catholic king or a Protestant king? <laughs> Right? There was a lot of fighting over that. So at the time, there was a Protestant king, James I, and the Roman Catholic folks did not like that, so they plotted an attempt to overthrow the government by apparently putting a bunch of gunpowder and other explosives under the House of Lords. And they were going to blow the thing to smithereens, taking out the king and a bunch of his people with it. Well, as it turns out... Uh, Somebody was onto the plot and they went to investigate the situation and they found this fella named Guy Fox guarding the explosives that were embedded uh, under the House of Lords. And uh, he was arrested and duly dealt with and a whole bunch of other people that were involved in the plot were, uh, 
were taken care of according to the justice system. So what happened after that? Well, what happened after that was the king decided to declare this a day of celebration, right? Because the, the plot was overthrown. And it was known by various days. Some people called it bonfire day. Some people, they lit fireworks and it was a fireworks thing. And uh, eventually, for a while there, things settled out to Guy Fox night. And you ready for this, parents? What do you do on Guy Fox night? You burn an effigy of Guy Fox. You build a physical representation of this guy, and then you burn him. Really good for the kids. <laughs> it's not dark at all. Not dark at all. Guy Fox night. We, we, we celebrate things in a very odd way. Now, we're going to get to the end of the book of Esther here. And honestly, uh, the, the end of the book of Esther is a text of Scripture that you could just kind of read right past not really pick anything up. And, uh, and, and I thought, oh my, I'm going to be preaching this and I've, I've, I've got to figure out what this means and is there any significance here? And, and I am shocked there is tons of significance in this passage. And so we're going to get into it. And, and here's what we're going to learn, I think. We're going to learn the answer to this question. What does the end of Esther teach us about the importance of remembering significant events? And it's not, I just want to give you a cut to the chase a little bit. It's not just that they celebrated a significant event, but how they did it that is kind of shocking, okay? It's how they did it that's kind of shocking. All right, so let's just read the text. Um, I'm gonna start in Esther chapter nine, verse 20, and we're just gonna go all the way to the end of the book. Esther chapter nine, verse 20, all the way to the end. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for, from them, for them from sorrow into gladness and from a mourning into holiday." that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast purr, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they cast, therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city. That these days of Purim should never fail should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter 
about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The commandment of Esther, or the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to the king Ahasuerus, and he, had, he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This ends the reading of God's word. Now, this is a very basic outline. Uh, this is basically we're, we're doing the five things, right? Who, what, when, where, uh, why, how. I don't know if that's five or six. But anyway, you get the idea. We're, we're just interrogating the text here and trying to figure out what this means. So the first thing that we come to is when to remember, when to remember. And that's pretty obvious, right? It says right in the text that they are to remember this holiday, Purim or Purim, however you want to pronounce it, uh, on the 14th day and the 15th day of Adar. Now, uh, Purim, or Purim, was uh, February 25th and 26th of this year. So it just happened a few weeks ago. February 25th and 26th is when the Jews celebrated uh, that holiday. Now, here's what's shocking about it, if you ask me anyway. What's shocking about it is how they marked it, right? If... if if, if we as a people gathered ourselves together and we went out and we, we batted a thousand in battle, we went out and we fought against all of our enemies and we won 100% of the time, then what would be our propensity? What day would we pick to celebrate? Well, you know, in the World War II, right, when we, when we, when uh, Germany surrendered, right, we declared that Victory in Europe Day, VE Day, right? Remember that? Uh, so that would be the day to do it, right? The day that we won. But that's not what's in the text. If you remember, they were to attack on the 13th and the 14th, but Purim is on the 14th and the 15th. Why is that? It's because, and this is all I can gather from this, is from this text, is that they're marking the day of relief and not the days of fighting, the days of relief. Now, why is it two days? Remember, um, around the empire, the, everyone was, all the Jews were allowed to fight back on the 13th day of Adar, okay? And, but the fighting in Susa, the capital, lasted two days. Esther, remember, she asked for an extra day. Apparently, they hadn't dealt with all their enemies yet. So she asked for an extra day. And they fought against them on the 14th as well. So they declared the 14th day for everybody else in the empire and the 15th day for the folks in Susa. So they, they just decided to make it a two-day holiday, right? Two-day holiday. And they declared these days, uh, days of Purim. And they marked, again, they marked the days of relief and not of fighting. This may not seem like a very big deal to you, but I want to point, point out to you that... <laughs> 
Instead of marking the day of bloody victory in battle, they marked the first day of peace. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? I think that sends a message. At least that's what I took away from it. I, it, I think it sends a message. Let me give you another example from our history. Uh, in, in the United States of America, we celebrate Independence Day on July 4th, and we remember July 4th, 1776. What happened on July 4th, 1776? Did we win a war? We did not. The, the Revolutionary War was not finished until 1783. So what happened on July 4th, 1776? We signed the Declaration of Independence, right? It, in other words, we declared to England, nope, we're done. <laughs> we're free, we're free. We're, we're just telling you right now, we're free. You may not believe us, you may send an army. We're free, we're, we're independent. Um, and and I, again, I think that's significant that that's the day that we choose to celebrate. The Jewish people did not celebrate the day of the battle against her enemies, the day of victory. Instead, they chose to celebrate the first day of relief. Now, I'll talk more about this later. Again, I, I'm just impressed with how the Jewish people chose to remember this event. Um, I think if we pause and look closely at what's coming, we may learn something about how significant it is that we do remember, how we remember. So that's, we're gonna, that's what we're gonna get to next. How to remember, what were they supposed to do on this day? Were they supposed to be like Guy Fawkes night? You know, hey, let's go make some effigies of Haman. Let's make some effigies of Haman and we'll rehang them on the gallows. That'll just send a message to everybody that, hey, yay, Purim. It's supposed to be dark, sorry. Look at chapter nine, verse 22. This is how, this is the instruction that's given, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. In other words, this is supposed to be a day of celebration and uh, feasting and joy. Celebration in terms of feasting and joy. Why is that? I, think with me for a minute. Think with me. There's a day, let's, let's pretend that there's a day coming in December. I don't know. Let's just pick December 1st, 2021. December, uh, this, now this is not real. This is a hypothetical. This is a mental exercise. Don't tell anybody that, you know, this is happening on December 1st. But let's say, let's just say that in the United States, it is declared that on December 1st, 2021, um, you're allowed to kill as many Christians as you can. Wipe them all out. And let's just say, I, I have no idea how a law or, or, or an ordinance like that would get passed, but let's just say that it did it. It passed both houses of Congress. It got up to the president. president signed it. Oh, maybe the president and I'm not picking on President Biden, but maybe the president just signed an executive order, you know. Totally wouldn't be constitutional, but let's just say that happened. And let's just say that a few days later, maybe a, maybe a month later, another order went into place that said, all you Christians that are due to be slaughtered on December 1st, 2021, you can fight back. You can fight back against anyone who would attack you. Now, it is March, what, 14th today? 
Beware the Ides of March for all you Shakespeare fans. It's tomorrow. It's the 14th day of March. What, 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 is it li- what is life gonna be like for every Christian in this country from now until December 1st? I'm guessing, it doesn't take a lot to guess, but I'm guessing that those days are gonna be filled with stress. What's gonna, and anticipation, what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen on that day on December 1st? I would just imagine that it would be incredibly hard. We would all be feeling the weight of that day coming at us. And I don't know, would, would we be going out and practicing like military exercises and, or drills or so, something to get ready for this thing? Maybe building up our muscles, eating less, eating more healthy. I don't know what would happen. But then let's say that that day came. And that day came and um, let's say the enemies weren't as bad because of maybe political reasons, because Mordecai's in charge now or so, somebody, some Christian guy is, is way, way up there in the government and the, the attacks are bad, but they're not nearly as bad as we thought they would be and, and they all got taken care of. And you can imagine the weight that would be lifted off of the people, right? The weight is removed and now they can proceed peacefully. That's what they're celebrating, right? They're celebrating that this tremendous thing that has been in front of them is now that weight is being lifted off. But again, I wanna focus on how, how they decided to remember. There's a variety of different aspects of this whole book of Esther that they could choose to focus on, right? They could focus on Haman. They could focus on the reversal of his plot and his gruesome death. Or they could focus on the Jewish people gathering themselves together to fight, right? And ooh, look at the military, look at the victory that we had in battle. And maybe they could point to a few people who were specifically heroic that day and say, look at here, look at here. And, and really uh, point to, as an emphasis for this holiday, they could point to victory over all of Israel's enemies, Think about this, parents, think about this. Say that year after year, you're celebrating this holiday and the whole focus is on victory in battle, victory over our enemies, victory over Haman, victory. What message would that send? I don't know, not a mind reader, but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that it would send, a, it would at least, there would be a chance that it would send a message like this. Don't mess with Israel. Because you do so at your own peril. We will mess you up. Look what happened on Purim. In other words, it would breed some sort of an Israelite nationalism and, and national pride and perhaps even a hatred of folks that aren't Israelites. What's the problem with that? That's not her mission. When, when God spoke to um, Abraham, all the way back at the very, 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 very foundations of the nation of Israel, when God spoke to Abraham, he promised him things, right? A land, a seed, a blessing. He said to him, in you, all of the nations of, of the earth would be blessed. In, in Israel, in, in, in that nation that would be built, all of the nations of the world would be, would be blessed. Israel, in other words, doesn't, isn't designed by God to be a military power, over all of her enemies, Israel is designed to be a blessing to all 
the earth. So that would be a bad focus. In other words, Israel's not there to be warmongers. Israel's there to be, to issue in God's shalom. They are his people. They represent him on the earth. They are there to point the direction to the one true God. So celebrating that, that way would be folly. They could focus instead on some people involved, like Queen Esther, right? Her bravery in the face of possible death. You know, she went to the king when she was unsummoned, and he could have killed her, but he did not. What a brave woman Esther is. Or they could focus on Mordecai, his honesty, his wisdom, his leadership, and all the great things that Mordecai did. But what would be the problem with that, right? The problem with that is our God is a jealous God. He, putting the emphasis on a person and pretending that God wasn't working through that person, that's just a, 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 a breeding ground for idol worship, right? Of idolatry, of, of elevating someone or something above God. Our young people could be tempted to think, oh, I just need to be like Esther. I just need to be like Mordecai instead of I need to do what God tells me to do. So, What we see in this passage is that these folks chose to remember the day of uh, peace, the day when that burden was lifted. Israel is, like I said, on the earth. It's, it's there to be, as Exodus 19 says, a kingdom of priests. In fact, God told him that. And you will, he said to Moses, you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And, and we learn more about that. What is a, what is a priest? Uh, a priest is a mediator, right? 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Israel was supposed to be, you know, they, the, the, God was with them. His presence was with them. And they were the mediators, right? They were the priests. They were supposed to represent God and mediate God to the people of the world. Not to focus their attention on defeat, military defeat, military campaigns, all that kind of stuff. So so I think it's good that they picked how they did to worship. They, they were to worship with feasting and joy. They were to worship or they were to celebrate with um, gifts of food and feasting and gifts to the poor. And I don't know about your family, but when my family gathers for uh, holidays, everybody has that signature dish that we want them to bring, you know? Like my uh, brother-in-law, Tim, we tell him, you bring the brisket. He knows how to make a mean brisket, right? My sister, we say, you bring the baked beans. She knows how to, I don't know how she does it, but she makes really good baked beans. Uh, I, I miss when my grandma Jerry was alive, man, because she would make the best pies. Uh, by the way, somebody reminded me, for all you math nerds out there, today's pie day. In case, in case you're, but my grandma would make the best pies. I mean, and she would cook up a storm leading up to a holiday and she would bring pies and cinnamon rolls I mean, Cinnabon is trash compared to my grandma's cinnamon rolls. Trash, it's garbage. I don't even know how you eat this stuff. My grandma totally ruined me for cinnamon rolls for the rest of my life. Um, there was at least two and a half tons of brown sugar in each one. <laughs> but is that, how, is that how you do it too? I mean, we do the same thing. Uh, 
we bring our signature. So I'm just imagining in, in, in all the folks in Israel, uh, everybody brought their signature dish, right? And, and we're giving it to each other and, and stuff like that. Um, and, and for that day or for that feast, everybody's eating good. Everybody's having their signature dish maybe. And, and then for that day, you're also, all the poor people are cared for, right? You give gifts to the poor, right? Everybody's cared for. And it's just a day to gather and to celebrate and to feast and to have joy. I, it, I, I think there's things here that point forward in time, right? I mean, uh, there's that passage in the book of Revelation that tells us that there's gonna come a day when there's gonna be this thing called the marriage supper of the Lamb where all the saints will gather with Christ and eat a feast together. There's just something about, there's something about the communal getting together and having a meal that's just wonderful. And that's the way they were told to celebrate. Their emphasis here was on joy and relief, not on military victory, not, it was on joy and relief. Joy and relief. And why? Because there's peace now. And again, I think this points forward. In the book of Romans, in the book of Romans in the New Testament, there's, uh, Paul writes about how there is no one righteous in Romans 3, right? There's no one righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We've all, we all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 makes it very clear. And if, it's like when I just read Ephesians 2 a little bit earlier, you know, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. I mean, we are left to our own devices, folks. We are horrible people. Sinners, every single one of us. And, and because of God's righteousness and because of our sin, because our, of our sin and our selfishness, left to our own devices, we are going to die and we are going to go to hell. We're going to be separated from God forever. If God doesn't do anything, that's, our, that's what we deserve. That's our estate. We're filthy, vile, pig sinners. But God doesn't leave us there. By his grace and his mercy, he sent Jesus Christ to come to this earth, to live a perfect life, and to be the only one who was worthy to be a sacrifice to make the payment for our sin. And in doing so, that conflict that once existed between us and God is now gone. There's now peace with God. In fact, uh, Romans 5, 1 and 2 tells us that. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, because Jesus did what he did, and because we've, we've put our trust in that, because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We, of all people on this earth, should be filled with joy. We should understand the relief, right? The, the, a little bit of the relief that these folks are feeling at Purim because we were in the same situation. We were in conflict. But the conflict was going to end with our destruction, and God rescued us. So, Again, it's just fitting that the, the celebration did not revolve around the killing of our enemies part. It revolved around joy and relief. Now, I'm gonna say something and I'm, I'm just, <clears throat> I, I'm filled, as I read this passage, I'm filled with the idea that the Jewish people 
in putting this holiday together, uh, Esther and Mordecai and, and you know, God obviously providentially working in and through them, was giving them a holiday that was not going to focus itself on, on hatred. Instead, it was going to focus itself on love, joy, relief, feasting, getting together with the people. And again, I just want to point out that this is a key characteristic of, of God's people. Uh, jo- uh, Jesus said this, by, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so I find this holiday, this whole Purim thing fascinating in what I think the Jewish people were attempting to do or what God was working through them to attempt to do to not have them focus their minds and their attention on the hatred of the other nations or the killing of certain people, but instead focusing their minds on love. Again, that one day, they're getting together. Everybody's bringing their signature dishes. They're sitting down for a feast. All the poor people's needs are met for, those, for that two-day feast. It's a wonderful thing. Okay, these next points will go quickly. What to remember? Well, in chapter nine, verse 23 to 28, what are they remembering? They're remembering Haman's plot, right? And he planned this plot with pur. Now, pur is just the singular of perim, or perim, it's just the singular. Per is a lot or a die, if you want to think about it in our modern terms. You know, the die that you, you throw when you're playing Monopoly or whatever, a board game. Um, it's, a, it's a die. So perim is just multiple. It's, it's the plural of that for all you Hebrew scholars out there. So perim just means, you know, dice or lots, whatever you want to say. That's, that's what they named the holiday after the dice that Haman used to pick the day and the time that they would be killed. And then they just, they, they put in there that, the, that one of the things that they are to remember is that the plot turned back on his own head. Again, that's not a huge feature of the holiday, but it's something that they, that they want to remember, right? Now, who should remember? This is also very interesting. Who should remember? Well, the, the text makes it clear. Jewish people, all generations everywhere. The Jewish people are to remember this holiday, this feast of Purim. And again, We've seen this other places in, in Scripture, but I'm just bringing it out once one more time, and that is that oftentimes when God puts a holiday on the calendar, he does so for the reason uh, to, to be able to teach future generations the mighty hand of God. For example, in the Exodus, where God delivered Israel out of Egypt, uh, he gave them not only that deliverance, but he gave them a holiday to celebrate and he told them how to celebrate it. And so in Exodus chapter 12, we read this. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Meaning the whole Passover meal. You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and, and worshiped. So these holidays that we have on the calendar, these things that we celebrate uh, are designed to teach, right? They're designed to teach. Your, first of all, it's a reminder to yourself of what God has done but it's also to teach future generations because though you may not break out a Bible uh, and read to your family, which you should, though you may not teach a Bible story or Bible lesson to your kids, which you should, these holidays are gonna come up on the calendar and they're gonna cause an automatic conversation, right? Why are we doing this? 
Why remember? Why remember? Now, here we get into chapter 10. And I, can I just say, this may be a bit of a stretch, uh, but I started reading chapter 10. You know, there's only three verses in it. And the first line is, King Ahasuerus opposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And I, I started thinking about taxes. It's tax season. Get your taxes done. Uh, it's, and I started thinking about taxes, and I, and I started to, to think about the whole Persian Empire government system, okay, and and how King Ahasuerus, apparently, we don't know, we're kind of reading, as we read the text and we understand historically what was going on, he seemed to be so fixated on military conquests in the empire that when a guy like Haman, kind of a bureaucratic type guy, when, when a guy like Haman showed up on the scene and said, there's these people and they don't obey anything and they're not really all that handy to have around and so let's just kill them all. <laughs> he said he agreed to that. In other words, there was something about this, this governmental system that wasn't right. So I put there was a, there's a depressive system in place, right? The, the very fact that Haman could weasel his way into power and that he could get up to the king's ear and that he could... He could, decree, he could make such a decree that all the Jews were going to die is crazy to think about. But anybody who understands a bureaucratic system and, and understands how dysfunctional they can become, you get it, right? People can weasel their way into these bureaucratic systems and they can make bad things happen. And that's exactly what, what happened here. And though there was an oppressive system in place, what they're reminded of, because the next person that's talked about is Mordecai, is that one of their very own was elevated to secure their deliverance. Now, this, this oppressive system wasn't just in place in the Persian Empire. I, I, I put a reference there, 1 Samuel 8, uh, 10 through 17. The reason I put that reference there is because I don't know if you remember this or not, but the Israelite people earlier in their history, they had gone to Samuel. This was before there was ever a kingdom of Israel. They had gone to Samuel and they said, give us a king, give us a king. And Samuel said, you don't want a king. No, give us a king like the other nations around us, give us a king. And so in 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 17, Samuel tells the people what the consequences of that is gonna be. Like the king is gonna take your kids and put them into his service, right? The king is gonna tax you. The king is gonna take of the best animals. You know, it's gonna be a bad system. And uh, sure enough, uh, it happened. So there wasn't just an oppressive system in the king kingdom of, of Persia. I would say it this way. Any place where we find human beings trying to perform self-government apart from the word of God, bad things happen. Just my opinion. But we see in Mordecai, one of their very own, not a very tall man, not a very, you know, not a very great man in terms of his physical prowess, but a, a, a man who was elevated by God, moved into a place of high position and secured their deliverance. And here I just think of that this is again pointing forward to the future where, where there's gonna come a man and this man is going to be born in very humble estate, you know, born in a stinky, smelly manger. And he's going to grow up and he's going to be used by God in remarkable ways to secure the deliverance, not just of the Jewish people, but of the whole world, right? Of the whole world. Anyone who would believe, and that man is Jesus Christ.
That man is Jesus Christ. And so, what does this teach us? And the answer to the question is this. The end of the book of Esther teaches us how everything about how we celebrate communicates more than we know. Everything about how we celebrate communicates more than we know. So, by way of application, let me just, let me just make a few here. And there's just a couple. Number one is be intentional, right? Be intentional. The next time we celebrate a holiday, take some time and review what that holiday means yourself, right? And then share that with your kids, your grandkids, your neighbor, your friend. Um, and you can use this out, the outline of this message as a tool, but really it's just reviewing the who, what, when, where, why, how, you know, the, the things, uh, the basic things about this holiday. So let me just, let me just preach at you for just a minute. I mean, if we, as a Christian people, if we get to Easter, which is coming soon on the calendar, if we get to Easter and that holiday for you and your family and your kids is all about picking the right dress for your little girl to wear to church that day with the right hat and maybe some gloves if you're really fancy, and making sure that the pastel colors in her dress match the pastel button-down shirt that you're going to put on your little son. Okay, if that's the emphasis, if the emphasis revolves more around eggs and hunts, chocolate, bunnies, and baskets, then it does around the fact that the Savior of the world, who had been brutally murdered on Good Friday, rose from the dead, rose from the dead, therefore showing us that, it, that God in Christ Jesus had finally defeated death and that Jesus was who he said he was. He was the, the author and perfecter of our faith and that, that, that because of that reality, we can now walk, we can now put our faith in him, we can trust in him and we can walk in newness of life, our sins forgiven and uh, our, our, the Holy Spirit taking up Resonance in our life so that we can now obey the word of God. If that reality isn't what is emphasized, we're doing it wrong. If your emphasis is more around outfits and bunnies and baskets and not around the resurrected Christ, then brothers and sisters, we're doing Easter wrong. The same thing could be said for Christmas. How easy is it? I, listen, I've been there. I have felt the gravitational pull. Ah, oh, I gotta get these other presents. I got to get these other presents. I got to get the tree up. I got to get the decorations up. I got to get, I got to, and, and isn't the parking lousy at the mall this time of year? Why does everybody drive like a maniac this time of year? Instead of the reality that God saw us in our sin, He saw us in our sin and did not leave us here, but sent his only son into the world into that stinky, smelly stable. I mean, come on. Do you want your son to be born in a stinky, smelly stable? I don't. I don't want, I don't want my kids, I don't want my grandkids to be born in a stinky, smelly stable. But to send, your, send his only son born in such meager estate 
taking on the flesh, lowering himself, humbling himself, taking on the flesh to rescue us. If that's not part of our celebration, if that's not, in fact, the emphasis of our celebration, if we're not teaching that to our children and reviewing it in our minds every single year, we're doing it wrong. (laughs) And we're missing the whole point of the holiday. So I imagine that, that today, I imagine that somewhere there's an Israeli, an, an Israeli family that celebrated Purim back in February. And the sum total of what the children in that household understood about Purim was, Grandma's going to make her cinnamon rolls? Yay! When what should have happened was, let's go back and read the book of Esther. And let's talk about our great God. So be intentional. Secondly, and finally, evaluate how you celebrate, right? What message are you sending to yourself, your children, and the world around you in, in how you celebrate? It means so much. Father, we thank you for this book, the book of Esther. And Father, we understand that even in the midst of very difficult circumstances, even in the midst of very trying times, when, when your name is not even mentioned and when the folks don't even seem to be obedient to your word or even care that you exist, your hand is still always at work carrying out your promises, carrying out your purposes for your glory. Father, may we never forget this. May we never, ever forget that you are always working, even when our lives, in our lives, it doesn't appear that you are. You're always at work. You're always good. You're always accomplishing your purposes. Grind that into our heads, Lord, so we understand it and so we know it. And so, Father, and I pray that you'd give us a glimpse of it each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.